Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone. I am Nat Ortiz. I'm Head of Collaboration and Learning Design at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all this evening to this special event, which is part of a fantastic lineup of events put together by the London Design Festival. For those of you who are encountering the RSA for the first time, we're the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, a social change charity that has existed for over 260 years. Um, since our very early beginnings, our work has been focused on addressing complex social and environmental challenges. And this year we have introduced a new mission uh, named Design for Life, and this mission aims to unlock potential to transition towards resilient, rebalanced, and regenerative futures for everyone. Across all of our work, we are supported and inspired by wonderful partners like LDF and by fantastic speakers who contribute to public events such as George A. So tonight, guests, the brilliant George I is no exception. So welcome, George. George, hello. hello, George, welcome. Uh, George co-founded Greater Good Studio to use design to heal, to be just, to be restorative. Previously, he spent seven years at a global innovation firm before being hired as the first human-centered designer at the Chicago Transit Authority. Since founding Greater Good, he guides clients and teams through complex projects that honor reality, create ownership, and build power. He speaks frequently across the US and internationally, and is an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. His work has had massive influence on me personally, and uh, to many of us here at the RSA. So we've all been hugely looking forward to, to this talk this evening. Um, so George will be presenting for the next 20 to 25 minutes, and then we will have the rest of the time to have a conversation and answer some of your questions. So please feel free to add your um, comments and questions on the Q&A box, and we'll try to get through as many of them as possible before we wrap up at 7 p.m. Uh, so that's what's in store for us this evening. And without further ado, over to you, George. Wonderful. Can I just check, Nat, that you can hear me okay? Yes. Wonderful. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's been uh, a real honor to be invited here. Uh, from the RSA and then also to be part of the London Design Festival. Uh, I see a bunch of people in the in the uh, in the participant list and I'm going to try not to get distracted by all of those folks there. Uh, but if it's okay, I'm going to start sharing my screen and uh, start my talk. Uh, just like Nat said, hopefully there'll be questions that will come up for folks as uh, as I go. Uh, if you could put them in the Q&A uh, section, that'll help us a lot and then we can try to answer as many as we can. Now let's see if the screen share will work. Okay, Nat, can you see a green screen? I can. Wonderful. Uh, thanks, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here. And just want to maybe mention that if there is feedback, uh, either now or later on, uh, please uh, uh, send messages through Twitter, and then we will we'll do our best to get back to you there as well. Um, before I start, though, I'd love to know if there are folks uh, who have to generally have familiar folks are with human-centered design. I imagine there's probably quite a few. Uh, and if you are or are not, um, I thought I'd mention sort of just how human-centered design typically is framed. Uh, it starts with something called framing, then research, then synthesis. These are sort of like neat, uh, uh, discrete phases it looks. And it all looks very 
generally pretty great. Uh, and being human-centered, you would think that it would be always good for people when we do so. Um, and I'm going to tell you a story, kind of actually just how, uh, what impact human-centered design can have, um, especially how when human-centered design applied to lots of people. I'm going to share some quotes here from Stanford's own uh, alumni magazine. Monzies and Bones approached smokers on campus and asked them what they loved and hated about their habit. Their complaints were consistent. Fear of being seen with a cigarette and paranoia about smelling of smoke on a first date. It's a pretty good insight. Their first prototypes were ad hoc assemblies of bespoke components and items found on drugstore shelves. Now, typically, a story like this uh, does a lot of cheerleading about human-centered design, about how great impact is always going to be positive. And unfortunately, I can't tell you that's always going to be true, because in this case, uh, this story is about the dual e-cigarette. It's a, uh, a product that I hope the folks can see in my hand, this little tiny product, which actually is kind of cool if you actually think about it. It's had this disastrous effect on public health across the globe, and especially here in America. And this product being a, uh, an outcome of a process that uh, these students here follow from Stanford's um, product design program, I think actually is a great example of the kinds of risks that one can have when you follow human set designed without noticing perhaps the kinds of risks that can come along for the ride. Now, in many ways, the, this, what we described as the process that we just saw from these two students who were the founders of Jewel is that they actually just followed everything that they were taught to them around human-centered design. They did their own framing, they did their own research, they did their own synthesis, came to their own conclusions around behavior, and then actually put it up and trialed these new products. This dual e-cigarette, which I'm sure probably, maybe not everyone, but some people here will be familiar with, um, was acquired by Altria, you know, formerly the Philip Morris company, um, for you know, $12 billion, this is back in 2018, because they wanted to add it to their addiction portfolio. Somewhere along the line, when folks were trying to start out this, this process of designing a smoking cessation product, ended up creating an enormous problem uh, that actually is now adding, I think, to the addiction crisis that we've seen across you know, the world. And somehow we didn't stop to, to think and pause to say, why? How did this happen? Uh, and how was there just like a general sort of like apathy of saying, oops, we just made an enormous huge, and not only a huge business, but also a new public health crisis. In the most unironic way, I found uh, on Jules' uh, own website, uh, a director, a posting here for a director of corporate social responsibility, going to show with all the money that they're making that they're interested in trying to see how they can mitigate for some of the public, public relations disaster uh, that they've also faced. To me, one of the big questions coming from this type of example, a product that was founded in design and was a direct outcome of, of following the human standards process, is how did we lose our way? How could this have happened and not be some type of intervention in the many, many months, if not years, prior to being faced with a multi-billion dollar um, evaluation and, and uh, an offer for being purchased? Now, it's not as though design is a single monolithic block. It is adapted and diversion to many threads over many decades. Uh, clearly that's true. And I imagine that there are some folks on this call who might identify as being a design on one of these branches of design over the decades have gone by. And it's also not as though we don't already have some standards. Uh, these 10 principles for good design by Dieter Rams is something that's very dear to me because I used to be a, a part of a product design team. 
Um, and, you know, I've referred to this as a design professor many times, and I'm sure probably others have seen this as well. So I don't think what this, um, what this constitute isn't that it's uh, a bad list by any stretch. If anything, if you were to look across the jewelry cigarette, again, this product I'm holding in my hand, it, it actually adheres really well to all of those 10 principles. In fact, if you look, uh, uh, look at number six, this is good design is honest. It's doing that too. This will honestly kill you. I mean, they, there's no shame in it uh, at all. What you notice, you see, is that we have a craft-based framework for good design. We're, we're like pretty good on that part. What we lack, you see, seems to be an ethical-based framework for good design. They aren't exactly the same. And I think uh, Dita Rams, if one or maybe others, is a proxy, it might fall a little short on whether some of the products that we designed when we go through that process should exist, not how we get to what exists. Now, I have had the pleasure of being one of the co-founders and director of innovation at Greater Good Studio. Uh, it's a uh, design business we founded 11 years ago. And across that time, we've also been incredibly lucky to have to work on uh, any number of wide ranging social issues, um, all of which are uh, sort of like perennial evergreen and really pretty awful. Uh, but these types of projects tend to be the bread and butter of the work we do because we work exclusively with nonprofits, foundations and government. We say we work with clients who are building an equitable society. And I hope it would mean that um, something like a Julie cigarette might be filtered before we get to us. Now, here's what's kind of curious. What we notice, you see, is that when we've done our work in the social sector and we see many peers who are doing so as well, uh, many of the peers I used to work with you know, formerly in the commercial sector, what I notice again and again is that when a designers entered these complex social issues, like the ones we just saw in that list, is that we have a case of BYOE, as in it's a game that is mostly where you bring your own ethics. That to me seems a little curious and perhaps a little concerning because it's the kind of thing where perhaps not everybody knows which ones they're bringing until it's maybe the right time and how inconsistent that might be across designers in a single team that are across this, uh, one single organization and definitely not across an entire industry. You see, without an ethical framework, instead of being able to help uh, do our research to help us understand humans, we run the risk of exploiting them. Without an ethical framework, I think we have a, a chance of redistributing power, but instead we have a chance of, perhaps without an ethical framework, concentrating power even further. Without an ethical framework, we have, I think we have a really interesting chance of preventing uh, social issues from getting worse. But then without an ethical framework, we actually think we might just simply be ameliorating them. So what I wanted to highlight is the idea of something called that quiet little voice. It's not a new concept by any stretch, you know? Uh, and the reason why I think that this phrase is so familiar is that I think all of us know what we mean. And it's your conscious speaking up. It's when your own uh, inner voice is speaking to you. And in those moments when it has done, I think they always seem to show up at just the wrong time. I know to my embarrassment that every time it has happened for me, I myself have said to myself, shh, don't blow this. Don't bring it up right now. You have a good thing. Bringing it up right now is only going to cause more problems, going to cause problems for you. These are questions we can't answer. We don't, we'll get it on the next one. All these sorts of narratives start to counter the, the urgency that I had for myself. And when my little voice, my quiet little voice spoke up to me, I imagine there are many people on this call 
who recognized that voice inside. And I wonder when was the last time we've actually listened to it. I'm gonna share here <clears throat> 10 examples of the kinds of questions that my little voice spoke up to me about. And I'm gonna just take a little bit of time to read them out. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily all that profound per se, but just rather these examples that I hope, I suspect uh, others on this call might be familiar with. What is design's relationship to power and privilege? Which humans do we center when we say human-centered design? How can we say no to work when we need to pay off our blank, our student loans, our medical debt, our mortgage, whatever, rent? Designers often sink or swim, but why is drowning even an option? It is a brutal industry. How do designers decide which people they need to serve? How do we wean design's addiction from whiteness? Why, why doesn't toxic leadership get called out for what it is? which is typically unprocessed workplace trauma? Why does philanthropy, not community, set the agenda for social change? What's the cost of speaking up? And what's the cost if we don't? And then lastly, if any of those weren't already terrible enough, this last one's a nightmare. What right do I have to do this work? All these questions are nearly impossible to answer. And I don't think that they are set up to be neat in any stretch. But these are the kinds of questions I think keep me up at night. And they're the kinds of questions I think help uh, make me ready to do the work in the social sector that I perhaps prior to founding the studio, I wouldn't have even given much time to. So I highlight these because I feel like there's probably others on the call who have questions that are similar to this, uh, or maybe some of the ones that are the same as well. I'd love to hear from you one day what those questions are that you've been have facing. It seems that most of the time when we do projects in design, we have been mostly trained to say yes to them with some uh, pause perhaps to work out when and how, but really never know. I feel like that is an area that I wish we had more training in and perhaps specifically to design education to get our students and for have working professionals to be more ready to say no and to be able to share their rationale. This kind of observation uh, about the design industry as someone who is, I still feel a little bit like an outsider is the kind of uh, sort of topic that I like to write about, whether it's about design education and talking about how power works, about maybe what defining good means, or an open letter about the time that I had at this global design agency um, and the, the, the issues I found during that time. They tend to be things that help me process what's going on in my mind as an observation across the industry around how design typically works. One of the things that we, that we uh, mentioned in those uh, previous bits of writing, but something we think about a lot of the studio is how power works and how power shows up in design. And I think this is, again, actually part of the reasoning why that quiet little voice is so timid, typically. A definition for power that will be helpful here to share is a quote here from uh, my co-founder, Sarah. Power uh, obviously can mean so many things to a lot of people, but power, I think, is a neat way of describing it succinctly is the ability to change another person's reality. You might reference this to say, like, there are probably times when your reality has been changed instantaneously over an email or a text or a message on Slack. And there are things that you are probably doing today in your design work that might be changing another person's reality. That, to me, speaks to how much power you might have. Now, alongside and adjacent to this is recognizing the idea of what power asymmetry is. To me, asymmetry is sort of like a clearer way of describing what I've always found to be a slightly opaque, the idea of like power dynamics. I've never really understood other than 
they were showing up. So if someone said, wow, there was some really weird power dynamics in that room, I can tell that that was a room I wanted to not be in, but it didn't help me visualize it all that much. So thinking about power symmetry as being lopsided helped me understand not only what it meant, but also, oh, that feeling of being powerless seems to be to me a little more clear. Now, power symmetry can show up in a whole bunch of ways. And I actually want to visualize that a little more and talk about it because power symmetry, I think, is a key factor in how keeping your voice quiet occurs, but also how design work gets applied to both complex social issues, but just shows up in the world. Here are uh, this diagram here, this sort of triangle. I think it's helpful to recognize that the triangle has some meaning because if you have ever... Uh, got word of a project and you realize, oh my God, I'm never getting out this alive. This project doesn't make sense. The budget's all off. The timeline is ridiculous. I don't even know who this team is. If you've ever started a design project like that, I would argue that is you on the sharp pointy end on the right side of that power triangle. And I know that I feel like a lot of my career was spent at that pointy end having things happen to me. Now on the wide end, that is typically someone who has more power they may not even realize that they have it, but they're definitely applying that pressure to you, making in some cases it feel as though I have no choice in the matter. It's a very difficult, I think, very tough place to end up. Now to kind of extrapolate this a little further, there are many, many relationships that exist in the world of which design is sort of amongst, but these relationships span asymmetry. And I feel like it's helpful to talk about them because it helps us, I think, get more familiar with this phenomena because it's something that shows up not just in this talk, but like in the world all the time. It's a little different than maybe how power is typically thought of, which is at the world, world leader level. But I think it's also happening at this very small one-on-one -on -one relationship level between, let's say, law enforcement with detainees, doctors and patients, employees and employees, funders and grantees, teachers with students, landlords and renters, local government with community, leadership with their frontline staff. I wonder how many times throughout your day, your life is impacted by parasymmetry. Are you on the pointy end sometimes in the morning? Are you on the wide end in the afternoon? Uh, I wonder which side you're on when you call your parents, for instance, uh, or talk with some of your friends or meet with your spouse uh, or your partner. I feel like asymmetry is not a fixed state but flipping back and forth can certainly be both jarring, but it's also helpful, I think, to recognize which side of that asymmetry you might be on. Now, they're bringing this up because in design, this certainly shows up as well. And I think I was curious for, you know, looking through this diagram, where would create a good studio as, a, as an organization that's all about, you know, like fight the power and all about like being with, you know, pushing against the man, where do you think we would show up? Would we show up aligned with those without power? or we align those with power. I think I was a little embarrassed to admit just how far over we actually always are whenever we do our projects. We are often aligned with those with great power more often than perhaps we want to admit. And I think that's probably true of designers in general. We typically can't start projects without there being somebody with power who can, uh, you know, on a basic level, uh, get contracts signed, pay for the work, but also when that happens, and certainly this is true if we're trying to work for people on the right-hand side or on the sharp end, if we're trying to help those on the right, might we run the risk of making things worse when we've been hired by those on the left? I think that is an uncomfortable tension that we need to highlight and not pretend is not happening, because it definitely is.
this quote here from Alice Walker, I think is really helpful because it can help, I think, uh, give some hope for that rather depressing slide I just shared. The most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they don't have any. And I think this is often true because those in power are desperately in, uh, inclined to want to make you feel as though you have none. I don't think it's actually true. And I think if this quote from Alice Walker is any sort of testament is that we have more power than we think we have. And one of the ways I think we try to remind ourselves as an organization that is, I think, pretty, pretty earnest in this regard of wanting to help those on the pointy end is to be able to resist how power symmetry is given to us because we often work with people who are quite powerful. And one of the ways we can do that resistance is to have a gut check. So in our studio, all new business development every Monday goes and gets reviewed by the whole studio. And I think this practice of being able to say no on a regular basis is something counterintuitively is actually what keeps us in business. It's actually been one of the best ways we've found to be able to kind of like push back on the tsunami of pressure we feel whenever we look at both uh, projections and also the kind of like potential projects we have in front of us. And what we found, maybe surprisingly, is that especially in the social sector, not every question warrants an answer. Not every project that we get asked about really should exist. I don't know how many people on this call might be familiar with working on a project that seems kind of, you know, flawed or perhaps misguided. That might have been a case where perhaps somebody ought to have said no long before you got to work on it. I wish that had been a little more present. And I'm happy to say that over the last 10 years or, you know, 11 years now as a studio, we've now done about, I think, over 50 breakups uh, over those 11 years. We have a good track record and a practice of being able to say no and give very clear rationale behind it. Uh, I'm also incredibly proud of the fact that uh, it seems weird to be proud of, but proud nonetheless uh, of the single largest breakup I ever had to do was for USAID. That's the federal government's um, international development arm of a $2 million contract that would have funded our work, you know, our studio for, for at least a couple of years. So with that practice of being able to say no, I thought it might be helpful to share actually what it looks like when one does that breakup email uh, as an example. So this is, this is an email of the very first real proper big boy pants version of a breakup email I had to do with an organization uh, where it says, uh, you know, I have to explain sort of how things are going. And I want to give like an underlying structure to say, you start with a thank you, then you say no, you say it's not you, it's me, you provide your justification and then you ask, let's stay friends. And I think this sort of structure is something we've had to do again and again and again. And I shared that with you because I wanted to not feel as scary as it was for us because I spent eight hours writing that stupid email. And I think this is sort of, as I'm starting to wrap up, a couple of last things. Without deliberate intervention, I would say that design really serves society. As much as we talk about how profoundly impactful design is and the story of how design and businesses has paired up for the last decade or so is obviously enormously impactful. But when we talk about how it serves society, I wouldn't just give it a pass. I would want it to be quite a critical view to see if that's really happening. At its core, I still believe design does two primary things. It builds capital and it helps people to seek comfort. I think that is what it has done for its, at its entirety. And when it does so, I think that is um, moments of risk that I wanted to highlight in this work. There's often, I think, alongside this acknowledgement is that when we talk about design, it is often looking for ways to have things work at scale. 
And unfortunately, what I've seen over time, and I think probably folks here on this call would recognize that what we've mostly been doing is causing harm at scale. Design has been an accelerant to technologies that are quite harmful, whether it's this, you know, Julie cigarette uh, or the uh, anti-democratic efforts across large social media platforms. Uh, it has been it has been alongside things that have been quite destructive to society. And I would say that every major brand has a dark side that has been brought to you by design that we tend not to talk much about. At this point, I'd say that design leadership is either being uh, blissfully or willingly ignorant of the risks in hand. And I think when we have this continued sort of like um, unwillingness to admit that there might be a problem, it's only going to cause problems uh, for society later on. And I think it is partly because what we celebrate tends to define our culture as an industry. We don't really have a lot of awards for the projects we didn't win, for the projects we didn't go for, the projects that didn't happen. So this like dotted line is like a goofy graphic to describe sort of what I wish we could see, which is acknowledgement and valuing of the projects we say no to on a regular basis. So what if, let's say, saying no wasn't about you having like being a difficult partner and about being sort of like an annoying squeaky wheel, but actually was, I don't know, a little bigger than just you? What if in fact we had a system of accountability, a code of ethics, some standards of practice, some licensing and accreditation, something around continued education and more? I imagine there are folks on this call who have great ideas on what a system of accountability could look like. And I and I would I would acknowledge that design certainly doesn't need any more gatekeeping. It has a lot of that already baked into it. But I do think what we were looking for is more accountability. Because right now design is sort of getting by on causing harm and going oops um, whenever it does so again and again and again. I'm hopeful that in the future we will start to see a sort of like bifurcation between the two worlds of folks who are looking to stay unaccountable and those who are. And I hope those who are getting, who are seeking to become more accountable will be a match for the clients who are willing to pay for that, for that level of rigor. I think you will start to see a separation. And to maybe give a glimpse of what that could actually look like, I want to share a peek at uh, a database that the studio and a few other moderators have been managing for a little while called the Social Change by Design Database. This is a database of over 250 organizations around the globe uh, where you can access via that, uh, that link, of organizations that are trying to chart a different path for themselves uh, and to be led by different sets of leaders that have been typically led before, looking to do work uh, that ad adheres to some type of set of principles. I don't think that this is the same as an industry-wide set of ethics that I just described, but I do think it's a start. And I think it's these types of folks who are looking to see and change where design isn't just to build capital, but to build power, and isn't just seeking comfort, but seeking truth. I think we're starting to see the beginnings of what this could look like. And if, for me, it gives me a lot of hope. I think in many cases, we actually have most of what we need. Design is multifaceted and complex, but I actually think it has all the right people in place if we could maybe look outside of maybe the next project in the next uh, quarter. And I'm hope that part of how we'll get there is for us to stop and listen uh, to the quiet little voice that's inside all of us. Uh, again, if there's any feedback for me, please let me know. And with that, I am going to stop my screen share. Oof, Nat, 
Thank you so much, George, ah. for, for your talk. Uh, <laughs> you your can get the adrenaline to calm down a little. <laughs> Thank you. No, that was that was a really yeah, provoking, thought-provoking. And there are lots of questions coming up and really kind of makes me think of what you said, design causing a lot of harm. And actually makes me think about Victor Papanek and his book, Design for the Real World, which was published in 1972 or 1970s. Uh, and he was saying the same, design co is causing a lot of harm. And it's time for us to reflect about uh, the harm that we are creating as designers, right? And and I, I just find it like really interesting that today we're talking about these. And what do you think? Ha I'm going to kick off the questions and then I'm going to go to to review some of the questions that you have. The audience has already provided for you, but uh, I'm just going to kick off with what do you think has prevented uh, the industry as a whole from having an ethical framework for good design? And what do you think it would take to co-create something like this? Um, are there examples from other industries that we could learn from, for example? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, now, I think what we have to probably get over is the the naivety that design can't be harmful at all. And I think it was especially problematic is the fact that we call things human-centered, not everything, but when we do call, say, something that is human-centered, we might assume that surely by centering humans, we can't be causing them harm because we centered them. And I think that that's sadly not true. It is no guarantee in the same way that you could probably have other tools be co-opted or, or corrupted, human-centered design can also have that issue. So in order for us to maybe get a little further around getting closer to this shared set of understandings, I think we have to see with our clear eyed where the risks are and recognize that every tool that we use can be uh, both co-opted and corrupted if the in, both the intentions and flags for, for systems for noticing red flags aren't in place. So what inspires me about this is to say, could we find uh, designers who are both willing to admit there might be faults in their process and before projects start, almost go through like a checklist of what are the potential unintended but fairly predictable outcomes that can come about from this project. To your question of why hasn't this already happened, what's gonna to be tough is just a reality that design mostly serves for capitalistic goals. So if we want designers to, to say no in any practical sense, we have to be willing to admit or at least accept we might lose the project if we bring up these questions. What to me, what that says is we're going to have to need a different kind of designer with a different set of expectations about what the projects are and have, uh, this seems like a very judgy word, but like better judgment about whether or not the projects that are being presented to us are the right ones. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to go uh, ahead and ask some of the questions that we have from sure. the audience. Um, so this is from Cass. Hi, George. I wonder, have you started to wrestle with why we center humans at all, given the ecological crisis we're facing? I have talked about humanity-centered design for a few years, but it still uh, doesn't feel right. Yeah, I mean... Um... A little bit of maybe design history might be helpful here because I think there was a period where design, if you go back far enough, was an offshoot of arts and crafts. So we have people who were artisans and craftspeople who were making things that were uh, tangibly beneficial to own and in some cases had actual practical utility. As that went on, we had a period of the industrial design uh, sort of explosion of both industrial design as a process as well as paired with the industrial sort of uh, manufacturing uh, capabilities around, around the globe. 
um, probably around the same time we have consumption growing. So there's a pairing of both design as a place to create value because it's matched with a consumptive model around the globe. So all those things are all kind of happening at the same time. That continues for, uh, uh, for decades, I'd say, till about their 80s and 90s, where I'd say one of the really interesting components of how complexity around technology starts to make the physical manufactured of products and, uh, and uh, mostly products start to become questioned around how much value can we provide if we don't start thinking at a new level, how is this thing being used? So industrial design and its combination of engineering and its combination of human factors, which I think is really one of the things that kind of happened during the 90s that makes it so powerful, is how we get to human-centered design. We get to human-centered because it says, how is this product used in a context with other humans? How do we suspect it to be more usable? Which is actually code for, how do we make sure this will sell better? No, there's no, I don't have a major fault with that. It's just, that's how we got here. As that's continued, we keep extrapolating, well, how can we better understand humans in the context we do our work in? That extends to now the products and service that we are all swimming in today. So it would take a lot, I think, to maybe uh, wean ourselves off being human-centered. I, I don't know if that's that likely, but to include why should this exist in those questions of like, how do we make it centered for humans? I think it is an additional question that I think we need to add. Um, I, I would agree humanity-centered design. I mean, I don't have a problem with that either. Um, but I think the idea of like, why do we center humans is because they're primarily the ones that will pay for the services that we have. If you change who those clients are, maybe there's a chance we could maybe decenter some of those humans. I don't know how I feel about that yet, but uh, there's plenty of humans that haven't been centered for a long time, which is I think primarily the work that we do as a studio. So centering some humans over others is maybe a big focus of our work because as we know, there are some people who have been marginalized, not centered at all, for centuries. So for us, that's a fairly big focus of the work that we do, is centering perhaps new voices, perhaps than the ones that have typically been uh, the ones that are, you know, at the center for the for the last for the majority of the design industry. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think this question is interesting also for us at the RSA as we're exploring regenerative design and thinking about, yes, the importance of redistributing power and like thinking about which humans haven't been centered, uh, but also in terms of humanity and in face of the ecological crisis, how do we design um, in, in more interconnection, like having uh, really first and foremost interconnections of people and uh, other living beings uh, as, as our planet uh, needs design that kind of looks into that as well and the mm. unintended consequences of, of, of that design work. Um, so yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about this and power as well. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and move on to um, another question from Caroline. Have you looked at other definitions of power? Uh, a, contentional, a contentional definition suggests that there's two types of power, political and potential. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's helpful to kind of think about all those different ways because power to have something, power that's bestowed on you, um, I think all, all help to, I think, add detail to the conversation. Um, one of the things that we've been focused on is trying to describe what happens when you feel powerless and making an analogy that that feeling that you have had in your life at some point might be showing up in your projects. 
But the reference I need to make is that that's probably how participants during your research or communities you might be working with might also feel. Re-traumatizing somebody through the feeling of being powerless again and again and again is awful. And it might help explain in some cases when you show up in community and people are already mad at you. It might explain why. It's not because you necessarily yeah. did any harm like in this moment, but you are just a reminder of how powerless we are to being researched again and again and again. You know, there was a really great uh, uh, PDF that's been put out by a group. There's a foundation here in Chicago, Chicago Beyond. Uh, one of their uh, white papers was called Why Am I Being Researched Again? What a great title. Mm. Uh, and I think it to, to me that that describes, I think, just a, the very a really interesting rhetorical device. Something that's also a reference, I think, that's coming up for me now is the uh, a piece of work that was put out by, I think it's a, a Canadian city um, that provided a group of um, ethical standards for how to be researched themselves. And what's interesting is that this group who were mostly uh, unhoused in this, again, in this, I think maybe Toronto, but in this area, was so frequently asked for research. They wrote their own re-ethics paper that says, here's how we'd like to be engaged. Just the level of wherewithal to be able to write that is fascinating to me. It's, I've included in my, uh, in my class, I'm going to start teaching in a, in a couple of weeks. But to me, that's just an amazing example of like how they wrestled with power themselves, realized we have power here. We're going to set our own terms. And unless you agree to them, we're not going to engage with you. Mind-blowing. Absolutely brilliant, I thought. Can you, can you expand a little bit more on that, George? Just We have another question that's from Alex in relation to what we were just talking about is how do you think that we as designers or design researchers mm -hmm. can distribute power more evenly? Do you think participatory design is enough or is there more that we could be doing? Oh, so maybe is, if you can, yeah, if we can kind of carry on on that. Yeah. So it would be naive of me, although I'm probably sure I've done this a bunch already in, in the years past, thinking we can just build power like it's a super cool thing that we have to like distribute. Uh, that is that is uh, not true. I just don't think that that's possible. We can contribute to shifting power. We can contribute to uh, leveraging the power we have. We can maybe distribute the power that we've been given and maybe give to someone else. But it's not that easy to just change how power works because it's a, it's a global phenomena, both at the large and the small scale. One of the things that we've made an equivalence to, which I, I, I want to credit Sarah, uh, who's one of the co-founders, started to realize that one of the best ways that power could be reduced, redistributed by a design team is to increase the number of decision-making moments that happen. So we're making the equivalence between power and decision-making. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That if you can be impacted, if you can be invited during moments of decision-making, we could say that that is how power could be redistributed to those at the room. That puts, a, puts an onus on us as a design team to work out, well, who should be at those tables? And then also, how many instances of decision-making can we increase? So right now, at best, human-centered design does some input during research to say, we're going to interview you. That's not quite the same as decision-making, but it's definitely an input. Very helpful. Before human-centered design, it was mostly a designer's gut, right? So we are taking a huge step forward because we now have people who are impacted by the work uh, as an input to our research. Another step could be, now let's take in the input. Let's see if perhaps we can include them during ideation. That's another good step because now we've increased more interaction. But on a layer across both of those is, what decisions should we be making because of what we've learned? Can we include those very same people again would be a new layer of power. 
another thing would be to increase the number of instances. So if let's say doing research and then ideation were two instances, you could argue that if we can create more moments where we intersect with those, those impacted, we should be increasing power. And then if we add the layer of decision-making to those moments, we would argue that's how more power is redistributed. So that's been sort of like our early thinking around how we can map power and, and power distribution to our process. Because to say that we just do it by default is probably not true. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I, I think it's really interesting to consider that at the stage of, for example, writing a proposal or working with a client around how might a project be delivered. One of the challenges that we find, for example, in our work is that we know that some of the people that are in, engaged, like we are engaging, mm -hmm. are already in a position of privilege to be able to dedicate a certain amount of time to be part of our research, for example, or to participate in a co-creation session. And uh, we find hard sometimes to, to, to think about how we might include those who might not have that spare time or how, yeah. how do we find ways to involve those who are, are often under such pressures, for example, that can't really participate in, in some of these design processes and adding more layers. I worry sometimes that there, although it's really powerful to be engaging people in decision-making as well. I worry about like how, who would be then that group of people, if that makes sense. Uh, it totally makes sense. Was invited. Now, what you're describing is one of the inherent tensions of doing this. So an extreme version is uh, we, we hold all the cards. We never give anybody a chance to play with our toys and we take no input, right? That's that's one extreme. The other extreme version is we, we open up the process completely. We give Sharpies to everyone and everyone now does the work of the previous design team, regardless of whether they have capacity or interest or have you know time. That also seems kind of unhelpful. So the careful selection of what will make the criteria setting for who can be involved and can it be a match for the capacity becomes actually, I think, the design problem now. Not mm -hmm. just the problem we signed up for, but the problem of how do we do engagement. Can we both match both the capacity and make it appropriate that if you have two seconds of capacity versus half an hour versus three hours or more, we have, we have ways to engage with you that is appropriate and it can be compensated at the right amount. So if you have more, you won't somehow be rewarded with more. You might have perhaps more chances to have input, but I can see how that would be a problem. But even if you have just a limited amount, we can still make a contribution. We don't want to penalize you for that. So one of the examples that come to mind is a project we did for uh, the Chicago Department of Public Health, or CDPH, around designing something called the Newborn Welcome Kit. So rather than trying to meet with people uh, all over the city, we actually met at the central location where, where parents were already regularly meeting. So this was a library. So we did a partnership with them and then designed the workshop so that when their input was given, knowing in hand that there's going to be a baby here because they're coming with their newborns, you can just leave a sticker if you just have a second or two to kind of engage because you've got to run off, or you have areas that have uh, boards with a lot more open space for you to contribute through drawings and sketches and other writing that can be therefore more like half an hour. So designing the engagement to kind of like flex, depending on what capacity people have, is like a rich area for design work to happen, not just what the outcomes are, but actually designing the engagement itself. That to yeah. me is... It's, it's, it's such a rich area for thought, but also what we are built to do. But we tend not to think of that as being something that's a criteria for our projects because we're so busy on just 
making super cool awesome stuff all the time yeah absolutely no that's that's really important really interesting okay i'm gonna move on uh, from that topic and i'm gonna go ahead with a question from michael do breakups work uh, for example <laughs> do the dumped clients often come back to work with you later on or do they take just take their money elsewhere and related to that another question um, from anna before turning away a project for it being not quite ethical did you try to do that by bringing your clients attention and shift their approach um how open did companies or clients seem to that and have anyone said yes to the project uh, going ahead on your own terms this is such a good set of questions um we met with i think the letter that i was describing in the in the slides is an example of a of a group uh that we have finally worked out a project with so there was a particular client at a very large um national foundation who we couldn't tell if maybe saying no to them would be the worst thing you could possibly do as a new studio coming starting out. Uh, we heard from that same client again when they moved to a different organization and we got actually just didn't get the project that second time. But a third try was a charm because we've now uh, are now in a contract with them uh, around reproductive health and social and sort of reproductive justice work. So I can thankfully say probably 10 years later from the very first breakup that the relationship is is still sound one thing i would i would probably argue for that if you did say no to someone whether or not you got a project they will probably never forget you it is rare to have someone do that breakup because it's going to have a lot of emotions with it attached so it's quite memorable i don't know if being memorable is a business goal per se uh, but it does leave a mark uh, and it will mean that you'll probably remember that person who kind of got away typically what we're trying to go for is not to just be belligerent right we're not trying to be memorable because we were like difficult to work with but hopefully memorable because we brought up questions that hadn't been said out loud so our point of doing this work is to say we love the IA generally want to do this work but these are the bigger issues that we have seen and I don't know if we can proceed without somebody addressing them and here's what we found is that if we don't drink prior to address them in these conversations up front before the project starts, they're going to come up when our team asks it of us, they're going to come up when we do research, and they're going to come up at the end when we have to face what happens to the project. So if all I'm doing is just front loading, the very same questions we're going to have to face later, we're just getting it out of the way. And I think that that time shifting of what a good question should be is for a lot of leaders, a very difficult thing to do. It's not that they should be surprised. It's more just realizing, what do I do if they say no now? What if what if I I don't want to ask this question because I already maybe already know what the answer is, which is it's untenable. So I think that that's why typically leaders don't ask these questions because they already know what to do. Yeah, but have you been able to persuade? Ah, uh, right. That's the other question. It the mm, uh, is the, is there a flippant answer? It's been very limited. Um, and I think it's because some organizations are simply not interested or built to have that type of critique. Some are, but not all. And I think the ones that are able to take that kind of pushback to say up front, uh, what do you think is going to happen when we find research that that um, calls into question the thesis you had? Some of those organizations say, that's exactly why we called you. But they were ready for that. Some, though, are not at all and will say, yeah, we don't need that. <laughs> we just need you to go do the project like go go do it do it and bringing up that type of question is just going to slow us down why would you do that right clearly we're not interested so in those cases 
trying to convince them, I think might be a lost cause. You can spend a lot of energy, obviously, trying to do so. And I think one of the narratives that I think I've, I've heard is, well, we should try working from the inside. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. I should try to do this project and it will help chip away at it. My worry is, and I think I've even, we, we, I've done this or I've fallen for that already, is realizing how unlikely that is going to happen and that the project you do for them this group that you have reservations for you've set precedent with that project and that project is very difficult to leap away from and suddenly turn and be do opposite but rather at best 20 percent margin from where you started so if you yeah. want to do that chipping away for the next 10 years 20 percent, 20 percent, 20 percent at a time it could happen but i think that that to me might feel like energy that could be spent with somebody who might already be on board and ready to do the work instead. Yeah. Um, yeah and maybe that. right. That, that, that misalignment. One last thing I'd say is that some of the times, if you just simply assess what is the organization you want to do this work for, what is their mission? Do they have any reason to care about this topic other than a brief uh, exploration or a brief announcement about let's say uh, Black Lives Matter or disabilities, whatever, whatever you want to pick. Sometimes for that organization, just making the announcement was the goal. Yeah. Just announcing they were doing something was, was all they were looking for. And then when you do the project like in earnest and say like, here's all this great research and all these great opportunities, they're like, uh, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> like we're, yeah. I've already moved on. We're yeah. already past that. I don't need to do anything. I just want to tell people I'm doing something. That can be really difficult to kind of face when you've done all this work, hoping, hoping that something's going to happen. And they go, well, we, why should we care? We've already moved on and our quarterly results tell us it's too expensive. Thanks though. Thanks for your input. That, that I, I, I feel like that's a really difficult thing to want to admit that might happen. And I, I want to put our energy with maybe groups who are already committed and have missions where them to like change their mind would be much, much harder. Absolutely. Not. Sorry to be thank so you. cynical. No, yeah. thank you for answering with uh, in such an honest way. Appreciate that. Um, uh, just we don't have a lot of time left, so I'm going to go for the last question mm. from Ismail. Do you have oh. any method to ensure there is no power asymmetry within your own organization? So at greater Amen. good, um, do you advise clients on this? Please explain. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think eliminating it would be possible, uh, if only because there is baked into our organization, which is only like 12 to 13, you know, 14 people, um, there is a hierarchy. You know, there is the two co-founders who by default, at least in this situation, are also the two owners. We have a leadership team of four directors, and then there's staff at different levels of uh, tenure at the studio and different levels of, of seniority. So even amongst like a 14 person team, there's, there's a hierarchy. And I think one of the things that have been kind of tricky in a group that you know, talks about power all the time is wanting to sometimes pretend there is no hierarchy, which I think just confuses everyone. And I actually don't think it's helpful to pretend it's not there, uh, to assume like we're totally flat. I think that's been some of the messages we've done to our to our era is uh, want there to be no to be no hierarchy. I think some hierarchy would be helpful. The challenge becomes how can we have hierarchy without dominance? And I think the reason we, we're interested in this is because both Sarah and I have been in places where hierarchy only meant domination. Hierarchy meant power, you know, and it meant extraction. So we are so fearful of hierarchy 
uh, in an organization, even at our size, because we've been so terrorized by it in other places. So to the point where by trying to pretend it doesn't exist, it's actually not helping now because we're like reeling from the other, we're like running so far from the other opposite. So the struggle, struggle would be, can there be enough hierarchy to be clarifying of people's roles, clarity around boundaries, all those things, but without the attachment to um, domination and power and extraction um, and to help guide others. I mean, I, I don't know if we, if we necessarily do that with, with clients. We, I mean, we kind of did a little bit with the project you and I worked on uh, at RSA, but what that was, was actually assessing across the whole process, let's say the, the student design awards, what are the moments we have peak asymmetry and how do we diffuse it through design? So that might be something we 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 would we could do. Um, and I'd say, actually, I'm pretty pleased as a student, we've done a lot of work around that with regard to hiring, with around um, business development. Um, actually, quite a number of different moments where we've really tried to integrate a power lens to decision-making as a whole. Because I think when we find that when we don't do that, we end up basically making a lot of decisions without enough input. Um, yeah. I think too profound, but that, that I think should make sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I mean, we could speak about these for hours, uh, but I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up. It's been a wonderful session. And yeah, George, thank you so much for joining, for joining us and giving us lots to think about and uh, for engaging with um, so thoughtfully with the, with the audience's questions. It's been really fantastic to come together to reflect on how we can all listen more carefully to those quiet little voices that we all have um, kind of an experience that we can all relate to I think and to really begin to explore how we might do better as individual designers to influence and bring positive change in our industry as organizations and really to support each other, I think as a as a global design community. I think one one thing that you have, like my work with alongside you and like um, kind of learning from you has been to really kind of think about, yeah, acknowledging moments in which I have power and the privilege I might hold in certain situations and how I can use that power to really hold the mirror, to really ask those questions, to really kind of elevate other, other people's voices or other people's work as well. Um, Thank you everyone for joining us from wherever you are and for your thoughtful comments and, and questions. Please do follow up with George's work online and check out the RSA Designs for Life mission paper to dive deeper into some of the issues that we discussed this evening. Uh, the links to do that are in the chat. And that's left for me is just to say thank you again to the wonderful George I to our partners at the London Design Festival and thank you all of you for joining us and watching. Uh, good night and see you next time. Thanks, Nat. Thanks, RSA. Thanks, London Design Festival. Thanks, everyone, for, for joining today. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.